Hello, I'm Afi. I'm Carl. I'm Jess. And I'm August. Welcome back to the periphery. Today we have, and you know I'm going to say it, another exceptional episode. Um, I'm so surprised. <laughs> this time we have TikTok creator Lip Gloss. Well, my name's Lip Gloss, and basically I'm just like a regular dark-skinned black girl, and I just talk about how ridiculous is to be treated like a normal person like I always say like the main character in a movie you're always just seen as the side character and I just talk about coping with it I make jokes about it things of that nature and so you know we're kind of in the middle of a content moderation uh Frenzy. Frenzy right now. Last week we had... Onslaught. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I disagree. I think we've had a conversation this is, for a yeah, while. This is, this is also just coming, I think, from the recent experiences that we've had. Yes. What else do I mean? We've, we've had a number of guests now. Last week, Daphne Keller. Right. This week, Lip Gloss. And some future guests as well. And um, today, actually, I was fortunate enough to go to a speech by President Barack Obama. And that's our guest today. <laughs> right. <laughs> We were lucky enough to get the president on the periphery today. Um, no, we wish. That's right. sometime in the future. Right. But uh, yeah, he was giving a speech today um, at Stanford at the Cyber Policy Center about really what we've been talking about these past few weeks. Content moderation, um, information on in the digital sphere, um, disinformation as well. And it was a really timely and interesting speech. And for the president to be speaking about these issues, I feel like they've really kind of arrived in the mainstream. Totally. And, um, you know, you know, I did not, unfortunately, get to watch because I, I don't read my Stanford email. <laughs> so uh, well, you wouldn't lottery. have gone through the lottery anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did watch the uh, the stream on the video, and it really connected to a lot of what we were talking to Lip Gloss about. Uh, I think, you know, kind of in particular... A good starting place is maybe the stakes that we, we were getting at with lip gloss, um, particularly with how it affects content and discourse. Uh, she was kind of talking about some of the inequities that she's seen or that she's observed kind of the rules of the TikTok game as she's experienced them. Or is there like some kind of like ideal content creator that they have in their head? When I tell you, when I tell you, I can't answer that question because it's so it's so crazy. I just know if you're black, you are not. You're not going to get away with a, a bikini. You're mm. not going to get away with yelling. You're not mm. going to, because like, even with like breastfeeding, I've seen so many boobs like flat out on TikTok and the video does not get taken out. I'll tell you right now, if a black person, if a dark skinned person gets on there and shows their boob, it's gone. It's gone. Mm. I've seen um, people show damn near their private parts on here. And it stays up. It stays up. But if you are black and you and you even try, if you even try to short skirt, your video is getting taken out. Period. And you know, Keller talks about the dis the disproportionate application of these rules. Um, our guest Nora did as well. That's forthcoming. And you know, so then I went what, this research. I want to see like, is there any empirics that can support some of these observations? And it turns out that. There actually is quite a discrepancy when it comes to how these constant moderation policies are implemented that kind of mapped onto her perceptions. You know, uh, the three groups of people that tend to get moderated the most are transgender uh, people, black people and political conservatives. And they for different reasons. But uh, there is this 
this this uh, disproportionality happening. And I think for me, the most concerning part is that we still don't really know why. <laughs> it's still a black box of decision making, mm-hmm. and we don't really know how we want to resolve it. It's a difficult issue to resolve. I mean, just in uh, in President Obama's speech today, it, it, it he he was basically saying that there are some maybe more minimal interventions that are content neutral that maybe a larger range of people can agree on. One being transparency. Um, There's a bill currently, I think, um, in Congress about kind of getting more access for researchers to these platforms and how they make their content moderation decisions. Um, But then also having a degree of kind of self-regulation within the companies themselves. But when the companies are making the decisions, there will probably always be a degree of um, in transparency to those decisions if they're not publicly made decisions. So. Right, right. Well, that gets to, like, I think, a, a broader view of, of the problem. And this goes back to, I'm going to reach back to season one, when uh, we talked to uh, Bill Kovacic, former FTC chair, and he mentioned at the very beginning that, that there are a, a lot of different factors at play that have brought us to this particular very political tech-focused moment. But um, one of them is that people have begun to view the digital platforms, especially the social media platforms, as their own separate government. Those are his words. And I agree that there's this kind of perception or anxiety, both among policymakers, because it's their power, and among people, because it's technically their power, uh, that there are there is this kind of private government or government-like situation that is emerging in terms of uh, when we migrate to an online environment or when we interact digitally. Um, yeah, I mean, one example of that is the Facebook Oversight Board. Of course. Kind of like a quasi-Supreme Court, like a judiciary within a company. Right. I and mean, that, that, that yeah. to me already seems to indicate that um, these platforms are adopting almost kind of quasi-governmental functions. Right. And that was an instance of a corporation, which is an institution that is designed to make money, uh, that uh, was essentially trying to grasp for some form of legitimacy through some institutional innovations. I think that we should look at institutional innovation more closely, even if that Supreme Court, quote unquote, uh, might not really work. But more broadly, so states, they enforce their laws and enforcement in itself is selective. Mm -hmm. And that is why I think we have a lot of problems where we feel like there's a due process violation Mm -hmm. when, or or there's some kind of constitutional or uh, or procedural violation when, for example, lip gloss uh, gets uh, uh, disciplined or removed from a platform without anything that's that we can call substantial notice. So basically, I had like several. If you if you get like several violations in a row and you just keep doing it, then they ban your whole account. That's what happened with mine. Like they told me, "Hey, if you mess up one more time, your account's gonna be gone forever." But for other people, they just ban it out the blue. And what were what were what were the other violations? Like, can you recall the videos that triggered those um, violations? I've had, I've had violations. I know you had like for, plenty. <laughs> I've had violations for most of the time, harassment and bullying, nudity, um, which is crazy. I've never been nude. Um, <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> what else? I think uh, violence, violence too. Which you I, had I know, violence? right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just stuff like, and then sometimes they don't even tell you. Sometimes it just it just says it just says violation. Huh? Did you know how to comply? Like, did they provide enough information for you uh, to like actually? They have the follow? community guidelines, and that's it. And the community mm. guidelines is very up for interpretation. But I will say, it does say 
um, we are taking any videos down for white supremacy on there, but they don't take white supremacist videos down at all. <laughs> so do you feel like you can even trust what these what these uh, policies and rules are? Like how much meaning do they have for no. you? No, uh, no, how much, wait, what was that last question? How much meaning are these like content policies? How much do they have for you when you see it on the website or something like that? Do you, do you take it seriously? Um, yeah. My page is literally PG-13 now. Do you take it seriously that they actually enforce it? Like that they actually mean it? Or is there some other background rule that they're not talking about? I think that the, their new community guidelines is damage control because everybody, you know, was calling the app out for being, you know, racist and stuff. But mm. it definitely, what am I, what am I trying to say? The rules make sense. The community guideline rules make sense. But the way that they're enforced does not make sense at all. Instead of saying, um, you know, a lot of white men do this. I'm not, I have to sit in the camera and go, a lot of these colored people. And you can't, you cannot scream. You literally, if you're black and you scream, because I had a video where I was reacting to the Will Smith slap. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I was screaming. And they took it down for violence. So no screaming. You literally have to be in the video. I think that sometimes these people did it. You have to like kind of speak like that more or your video is going to get taken down, especially if you're saying something where people can be offended, your video is going to get taken down. And even whenever I put, now I'd be saying um, trigger warning, graphic content coming down, and they still take it down. They do not care. Dude, that's messed up. You know, not any, without anything that can actually provide some means of appeal. Yeah. And wait, why do we expect these rights? Because these are companies, you know, like I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, hey, um, hey, hey, uh, Walmart, you know, I'm going to appeal this price. This price lacks lacks transparency. <laughs> I wasn't given notice about this price change. And although, you know, you could, you could, you know, that could be an antitrust violation. You, yeah, it could be. We could get there. Yeah. You know, the state comes in and says, actually, companies have to behave in a certain specific way. There's a very broad, a very broad, but specific kind of way. Uh, but in this particular instance, we don't have those kinds of laws. We don't have a rigorous, you know, century old uh, regime for managing digital rights. If those things can be said to exist, uh, it's hard to cognize harms. Uh, I think that the main thing is we are we have no answer to this idea that platforms are essentially acquiring something that looks a lot like state power even if it technically isn't i think it goes even further than that like when you're saying why do we expect these rights i think part of the reason we don't have an answer to that at least not yet is because we also don't really know what we expect from these platforms do we expect them if we you know what's becoming more and more common is calling them the public square mm -hmm. uh this is where people are having discourse. One, I'm not sure if we really want that. <laughs> Our public discourse hasn't particularly gotten better with these platforms. And also too, you know, if they are, that that's going to be much different than if they're just companies. Um, and I think, you know, when, when, when one, one we, difference also with, or one problem with the public square analogy um, is also the fact, and, and, and President Obama was also speaking about this, that the public square in the past, um, as also mediated by television and newspapers, etc., it was still kind of a collective experience where everybody, I mean, we, we, we've long moved away from this, but everybody was watching the news and the same news at the same time, right? Whereas now, now everyone, in some sense, it is a public square because we are interacting with each other, 
But each one of us, as we enter this public square, sees something different because the content is so personalized. Mm -hmm. And so, and, 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 and we don't really have an equivalent to that in the past. And, and it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to, to, um, to, to kind of come. That's what makes the comparisons to, to any public square in the past so difficult. Well, I mean, I, I guess my point was not really making about the public square is that we just don't know. Like we don't really know what we actually expect here. Uh, we sometimes we expect them to do all the moderation in the world. Like Keller said last week, sometimes we expect them to make everyone law-abiding citizens. Sometimes we expect them to uh, sit back and just watch. Uh, that's what lip gloss, that's the standard that, you know, if it were in her world, the standard that we would be applying. I just hope people can understand that I am a really unbiased person and I do not, I feel like everybody should be able to speak freely to a certain point. Not just black people. I, I I really hope they realize. I think white people should be able to speak freely to a certain point. But let us be. You know what I mean. Stop yeah. hindering every single word that we say and promoting what they say. Let us be and let let let's see how people react. Let's ha let's let people have their honest opinions and let's let people support. Show their support to who they want to support. Stop putting it in people's brains that they should support a certain narrative. You know what I mean. Just sit back and watch. The lip gloss doctrine. The lip gloss. I kind of like that. <laughs> I like that too. The Add lip that gloss to the doctrine. Toolbox. Yeah. Add that to the periphery toolbox. And those are totally different, you know. Or, or, and then there's even some people who think there should be a value or moral obligation on companies and platforms to, you know, stamp out hate speech, which goes again. And all these have tensions with themselves, depending on what we're looking at, you know. Uh, when we push kind of lip gloss on, okay, you know, your standard of safety, your standard to sit back and watch. What what does that actually look like? And, you know, I think some people would totally disagree with letting the type of content that she would let fly on, the, on these content platforms. I feel like, you know, your job is to promote safety and stop there. Mm. Don't, you're not here. You're not here to stop arguments. You're not here. This is the Internet. You're going to when you get online, you're probably going to be harassed a little bit. You're not here to stop harassment. What you are here to stop is actual violence and stuff, actual children being harmed, actual things that directly impact people, if that makes sense. But trying to get into these fuzzy issues, these complex conversations, stay out of it. Stay mm -hmm. out of it. You're, you wouldn't even, it's not even possible to sit here and go through and pick apart every single video and it doesn't make sense. At that point, at that point, if, if that's what you want to do, I feel like you need to come on here and say, hey, this is a dancing app. And that's what it is. That's what you can post on here. You cannot post this. Like, be clear and concise. You know, if you don't want us to post these systemic conversations, then say that. And make sure that white people as well cannot say these systemic conversations. You know what I mean? But don't come on here and have these fuzzy rules and try to interfere in, like, it's almost like they're like, I don't like that conversation, so I'm going to delete it. Like, that's ridiculous. And so where's the line? So you say like safety, uh, that's to be the, like as a guard, as a garden variety standard for all platforms. Safety so I kind of want to push you like what, what does the safety look like? Because Safety you know. means if somebody's lighting themselves on fire on TikTok, delete the video. If somebody's damn near showing a private part on TikTok, delete the video. That's what I mean by safety. So what, what if it's like content that's particularly racist um, and, and, you know, perpetuates a harm against black people 
I feel like this, I feel like if it perpetuates harm against Black people, like you're saying something like, I want Black people to pass away, then yeah, I feel like your video should get deleted. But if you're on TikTok saying, you know, sometimes Black people get on my nerves, I do think TikTok should leave the video up. Okay. I do. There's no consensus here. Like We just have no idea what we want. We have no idea what these platforms are even doing. And we also don't really know what the full effect is on our discourse. You know, Lil Gloss was talking about how big she might be if there was to sit back and watch Standard. You know, maybe she'd have 20 million followers. When you first join the TikTok app, if you're trying to get to my type of content, we're talking about but funny systemic issues, sexism, stuff like that. Takes you a are while. literally going, yeah, it takes a while. You're gonna have yeah. to be on the uh for you page, uh setting up your for you page for like five, six days. But I'm gonna tell you, Charlie D'Amelio is gonna be right in front of your face as soon as you open the app. Maybe, you know, lip TikTok wouldn't first and foremost be known in the broad mainstream when you first get on it, a dancer's app where you see Charlie D'Amelio doing these lackluster dances. Oh, lackluster, let me take that back. Dances. <laughs> we would still love to talk to you, Charlie. Um, and also just how it really affects our content and discourse. When we're talking about Keller and there's a billion pieces of content getting removed online a quarter just from one platform. We all, we know it gets people riled up. We know it gets, becomes popular, but we don't even know all the discourse and commentary that we're missing out on that gets filtered out for being allegedly violent or allegedly uh, sexual or nudity uh, that oftentimes, at least in lip glosses, uh, lip gloss experience, has zero mapping to the actual content. Another thing that, that we addressed in that conversation was also just of course, these platforms do provide guidelines as to the content that is allowed and what is not allowed. But the problem is that those guidelines often lack specificity and that many of these categories that are off limits are pretty ambiguous. What I've noticed is three people report your account and that video's done. Like, so if you make a video wow. that, you know, where people feel like they're attacked and they report it, it's like they don't even review the video. It's like they have like a computer system that just automatically does it itself. It's definitely not a person looking over the videos. And and, and speaking of that, Lip Gloss, I'm, this is a really kind of very interesting and disturbing story about how this was banned. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering like how much information were they providing you when they said, for example, uh, it's because of violence. Do they point to a specific instance or no. part of your content? No. Huh. They just, wow. they just leave it at that type stuff. And so um, we have the same process with our laws. Our laws are often phrased in pretty general terms as well. And then we kind of test them within, uh, you know, a judicial setting and they're litigated and then courts will decide what an ambiguous term means. Mm -hmm. But we don't really have that same process. Well, there's no currently. separation of powers in this situation. Exactly, exactly. And so it's all one power. the ambiguity kind of remains. And, and that's what makes... That's what makes it so difficult because you're, you're unable to tailor your own behavior um, to those guidelines because you don't know what they require. Right. And taking a step back really quick, uh, you know, Afi, I think you're, you're definitely right that uh, we don't understand how information really works. Not definitely not when it's in bits, you know, and um, we don't understand their psychological effects. What is that interface? What does that look like? Uh, what are the mechanisms that, that lead from disinformation to amplification to behavior? But, uh, you know, Ooh, I like that. That was good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> Thank you. Add that to the toolbox. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's um, but going back to what you said, Carl, about how, you know, in the past there was this kind of homogenizing effect because we had 
for example, back in back in the early days of television, where we only had three networks. Yeah, it's basically the same conversation that every American is having. Walter Cronkite with Walter Cronkite. Somehow I associate like the uniform narrative with Walter yeah. Cronkite. <laughs> yeah, because he was the staid, conservative yet appealing middle ground of those networks, you know, and he stayed forever. But um, uh, uh, you know, the downside of that kind of situation, where frankly we didn't have the technological means to have a ton of content like we do today, uh, is that it was oppressive. Narratives were suppressed. Narratives were not addressed. The American, whole American public went away ignorant, completely ignorant of ideas that were affecting vast numbers of them. And so that, and that was a big problem. Uh, but one thing we're seeing here, especially with a case like Lip Gloss's account, is that suddenly we have new media and new technologies that's allowing for new content creation, new different silos and areas of sharing information. Uh, and that's, that's great. And we expect to have freedom in, in that kind of situation. But a lot of things, some things have stayed the same. For example, if we didn't have any content moderation rules, if we didn't, if we just had basically a free for all where it was a giant pot and you can input whatever much information you want, I, I don't think Lipgloss's account would be very popular. It would be lost in the void. And, and so I think that really, I think every account that's popular is at least in part a result of what is essentially publishing. Yeah. Of what is essentially organizing and categorizing information based on what a publisher thinks is tasteful or valuable or profitable for a given audience. And that's just being done now almost on the individual scale or at least on a, on a somewhat targeted group scale rather than on the entire population. But it's still the same act, which is publishing. Like, right. I think some of my issues with some of the like policies presented is that they're trying to make a principal distinction between an algorithmic publishing decision versus a person, like case by case, going over every single you know line and word in an right. article. Right. But fundamentally, like, what's the difference? Right. I, I, I mean, can't, I can't articulate the principle, and I've been trying to for like a week. It's, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it is hard to draw a principle, and I think that it's almost unfair to try to think of one right now. You know. Uh, I mean, our, unless we have a day where machine learning algorithms are developing their own unique publishing rules and essentially thinking, I think this is what information is best based on whatever yeah. objective and something that no one could predict. I don't think we're exactly there yet because I think that companies do want at least close and immediate control over their content moderation policies. And they want, of course, that leeway by keeping them vague. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one other thing is um, when Lipgloss stated that her belief in a principle of equality, that if she wants to talk about systemic issues about race, white people should too, even if their views are odious and racist. Mm -hmm. um, what was especially interesting about that is that after she said that, we were silent <laughs> <laughs> for like five seconds, which is unusual for the periphery. And, um, you know, it's, and, and I was thinking about like, wait, wait, yeah, it kind of took us aback. And I think that's because there's this common notion, especially among young people, that if something is racist, it should be suppressed. You know, that in itself constitutes a harm. But that's not really uh, a practical way to go about regulating speech. That's a very normative view. And it's also not really in line with the First Amendment. Lip gloss yeah. much more was. I mean, yeah, I think empirically there is some support that our generation does not care about First Amendment or free speech <laughs> nearly as much as past generations. Yeah. Uh, but I also thought it was like very pow like compelling in the sense that, you know, one of our classmates, Jacob, he talks about the, sh the sh uh, horseshoe effect of like conservatives and like leftist people kind of aligning. And it's also pretty interesting that, you know, as a black woman, she's at least part of the group of people that have been empirically 
suppress the militia line, just like political conservatives. <laughs> and like, there's this like interesting little shoot. Like, I think there's a straw man happening oftentimes on these platforms where these groups are talking past each other. But really, like, you know, on our Twitter account, a Perfect page, we have a lot, our, for some reason, the algorithm thinks we really want Elon Musk content. And his Elon Musk fans are very free speech absolutists. I think not unlike we are. And on the other end of the spectrum, I'm seeing that same pattern on, like, you know, black TikTok, uh, particularly black woman TikTok, where they do want this absolutist perspective because every time it's not, it seems like they're at the, they're the ones who get shafted first. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's almost somewhat ironic that people on what you might call the extremes or poles uh, politically or culturally in terms of like culture and politics, um, they are kind of kind of coming to a consensus on content neutral policies, yeah. which sounds like yeah. it would be something that moderates would prefer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the moderates are all very confused. They don't really know yeah. what to believe. Yeah. And I think that they all tend to go into a specific extremism, which is conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, and once you believe in conspiracy theories, you don't really care about neutrality. No. You, you, in your view, know the truth. I think that's ironic. I don't know if this is a coalition. I don't I, think it's a coalition either. <laughs> I, do, I do think there is a growing consensus towards content neutral um, mechanisms to start m regulating these platforms like greater transparency. Now, of course, Transparency alone, if you're going to give researchers the access to how these algorithms function, but you're not going to do anything about it, all they can do is kind of expose what's going on, then, of course, that doesn't do much for us. Mm -hmm. And But then the other one, of course, that is potentially content neutral is this idea of like adding some more friction into the process, um, not allowing content to amplify quite as quickly as it currently is. Totally. Um, but that, of course, I think more and more people are agreeing on that. But of course, part of the value of social media and what makes it so unique is also its capability to amplify. Yeah. In some situations, we want amplification because yeah. we want certain topics or events. We want them to emerge into the public consciousness and virality can contribute to that. And so, of course, throttling amplification might help with um, some of the problems that we have with misinformation. But on the other hand, amplification is also kind of the unique value proposition of social media. Right. So like how, how far, how much do we throttle it? Because without any amplification, we're just back to, you know, like the New York Times. I would, I would disagree that the main value proposition is amplification. That's kind of just a thing that's, when I think my first days on the internet, back in and I was on the internet too young. I was like <laughs> second grade, first grade. It felt Oh wait, slower. people go on Facebook at like no Twitter at like five. <laughs> it felt slower. It wasn't there's been like clear changes and shifts in the design architecture that has made it less about connecting and actually talking to each other than like it's what than, you know, just seeing something, you know, immediately go to the top. And now it's, you know, on everyone's consciousness, like, well, some Caleb. I think, I think friction is so, of the, of the balance of harms, I think friction should be at the fore of, like, one of the things that, like, bring us back to at least preserving what the promise of these platforms were, or used to be, which is, you know, building, well, building it, connections it, it's and an seeing interesting, each other. I mean, you're, you're bringing up an interesting question. Like, is the value of these, because you could, you could kind of see it in two different ways. One way would be to say social media, the real value in it is for you to connect with people that you already know and to have a deeper discussion within that community. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, amplification is more about 
I have something to say and I want people all around the world, even people I don't know, I want them to hear about it. Right. Well, and, and that's amplification and that's having more of a public discourse. Well, so I, don't, I actually there, think, yeah, I mean, ahead. these two, the, these two value ads that social media platforms add, I think that they are inseparable because they come from the same value add, which I think is two words, um, which is speed and scale. Yeah. And uh, speed and scale, that means that you can, do, you can communicate very quickly across any scale. And that can be with family, people you know, sure, that's great. But what if they're across the world? That's yeah. speed and scale. Right. And uh, also it could be, I want to know everyone in my hometown. Scale, you know, yeah. even. And, and so I think that those value adds uh, are, are essentially why this is better than the New York Times. If, uh, or at least it's more attractive for a lot more people. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I mean, this takes us over to the private sector side because um, those are values and those are values that like, frankly, Francis, uh, Francis Hogan's idea of, for example, the third time that after the third time that something is retweeted or shared, you have to copy and paste the actual text. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a way to add friction. I personally think that would be very annoying. It'd be annoying, but <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be good. Uh, and it, sure, it might be good at addressing this kind of particular problem in a focused way, perhaps. Uh, but again, like you said, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, but also, I mean, I think that it does kind of, uh, it does take away of, from the reason why. I, I think that it's a, it's a hedge for the problem. It's a, it's a patch. Uh, it's certainly not a solution to why we're both attracted to social media and hurt by it at the same time. I think that one thing that could help is recognizing on the private sector side by the platforms that consumers value speed and scale. But they also really value fairness. Yeah. They really value yeah. feeling. Like they've been treated fairly. And I think that's actually where, again, these two poles of the divide can agree. Because I think each one, of course, they view it in very different ways. But both think that they're being treated unfairly in this current environment. Yeah. So if we can have some kind of basic notion of fairness that people can agree on, mm -hmm. now that's a big ask. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> but fairness, I agree. Like it's Fairness is really a, a crucial concept that I think ultimately can lead to more productive discussion. Yeah, and you know, this is like... It's uncomfortable, I think. Certainly from like a 20th century perspective, this is uncomfortable because we're talking about fairness, these kind of quasi-constitutional values. Uh, but we're talking about companies and boards of unelected people who nobody knows. I feel like TikTok, there's definitely not a lot of Black people working there. That, that's for mm -hmm. sure. And they have no face. They have no face. So there's no accountability. You know what I mean? For the things that they do. And it's just, it's so hard to tackle something when you, when you can't even get a foot in the door. I feel like with TikTok, Black people can't even get a foot in the door. So we really just have to like watch what happens. And they- His are, expertise really is not in managing- In speech, <laughs> yeah. First Amendment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, it's a big who, ask for them too. Yeah, who aren't policy people. Yeah. They, I mean, they have a tons of lawyers, but they're, they themselves aren't in like a legal mindset. Uh, why? Because obviously they're not- they're not in government. They're and really, I think they often don't want to think in those terms. They don't. I, yeah. I think if many software engineers, they'll say, yeah, we don't want to be dealing with these issues. We, we, Facebook we has a whole ad campaign guidance. of regulate us. Now, how genuine that is, you know, they're going to debate that. But they at least have an ad campaign saying, yeah. hey, we want this out of our hands. Right. We are ill-equipped. Yeah, and this is a big game of hot potato because <laughs> obviously our own government is uh, arguably facing a lot of challenges when it comes to governing. You know, there's a huge need for institutional innovation and new ways of thinking about policy that government, frankly, is designed to be slow about. Uh, and at the same time, you have companies who have a ton of information that's very necessary for policy and that the public doesn't have and the state doesn't have. Um, 
but they are their whole purpose was to move fast and break things. Their whole purpose was to bring ludicrous returns to their shareholders, which was the model from the very beginning when Google started uh, making yeah. money off of ads. Yeah. And so that kind of ethos still lasts. It's important. It keeps people going to the industry. It's a huge uh, policy problem. Well, I think we did it, folks. I think we did it. Uh, <laughs> thank you for tuning in. I do want to say uh, we do we are planning to put the full interviews for this season, um, kind of unedited with our remarks and stuff, um, on our Patreon uh, at the Perfect Pod on Patreon. That's coming this summer. We kind of are swamped with getting the season out this <laughs> during the year as we are law students. So we'll need a little bit more time to get those up, but that'll be on our Patreon. Uh, follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, basically all at the Periphery Podcast or Periphery Pod. And uh, sit back and watch. Yeah, and send feedback. And send feedback. We love it. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.